Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochilillo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cochilillo. And today we have Mike Fiorentino, author of Master of Reality. Thanks for being on the show today. Oh, great to be here. Thank you. Um, so, so you have quite a story here. Uh, it looks like your whole interest in it started out um, with an interest in Einstein. And um, as we were just talking before the show, you know, that's one of the connections that we have because I'm from Princeton, New Jersey. And my mom actually used to work for him. And my dad used to mow his grass. And, That's crazy. Uh, yeah, it, it is. You know, it's it's pretty amazing. And you know, the, the stories like my mom and dad used to tell me mostly just about his um, him really being really eccentric. And I love it. <laughs> and one of the stories that my mom used to tell me is um, one apparently he never wore matching socks ever. <laughs> huh. And. Um, and another top thing that she told me was, now I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently, like she said, that he was walking down Nassau Street, and he somehow he fell into a hole, and he just stayed there and spent the night until they found him the next day. Oh, I never heard that one. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how. You know, my mom. I don't know if that. <laughs> <laughs> he he did lose his way home a, a couple of times. I I read and biographies and stuff yeah um but i never heard it that he fell in a hole that's interesting <laughs> yeah yes yeah, it's, it's crazy <laughs> mm -hmm. um so, so what got you interested in einstein's work sure um it really started when i was very young at the age of around 10 i uh was going to catechism and the nuns there asked the students to find a saint born on their birthday and so I went home there was no internet yet uh, to look that kind of thing up easily and find somebody so I asked my parents if they knew any saints born on my birthday and then I uh, went to the calendar to look to see if there was anybody born on my birthday and sure enough I found that Albert Einstein was born on my birthday uh, I didn't know who he was when I read it. I remember, it's funny how I still remember looking at that calendar. And I says, well, I'll go look him up. So I went to, you know, we had Encyclopedia Britannica, and I looked him up, and I became very interested. And I just thought he was really the neatest guy. And uh, while I was studying him and um, reading about him, I came across the unified field theory. And when I read that, I, you know, that really just took my breath away. I thought, this is something that really makes sense. And I, I just couldn't get out of my head. I just wanted to know how the whole thing worked here uh, on, in this universe. Mm -hmm. And so from that point on, everything I watched that was science-related, science I, um, I said, does this have anything to do with the, <laughs> the unified field theory? And, you know, so I was studying, uh, studied magnets, played with magnets, electricity, eventually became electronic technician so that I, I, you know, was familiar with current flow and voltage and, you know, was imagining how the electrons were moving through the wire. So I was always 
hitting in and around the subject in my work and, and of course, uh, reading thereafter whatever I could on the subject, thinking someday I would read about somebody, you know, finally making that breakthrough. So basically that's how I got into it, just uh, an interest in Einstein, and uh, which led me to an interest in the unified field theory and everything thereafter, uh, even reading UFO books. I was thinking about how they fly and how uh, I thought, well, that must have something to do with a unified field theory, but certainly they must be using some sort of a field, anti-gravity field or whatever, to move about. So mm-hmm. it was all related, and I was started to look for patterns in nature and such. And that's basically, you know, how I got into it. Um, so so uh, what is the, universe, uh, the unified um, field theory? Um, basically... It's really quite simple if you just look at it like Einstein did. And he basically thought that electromagnetism and gravity emerge as aspects of a single fundamental field. So, well, you would say then, what is that fundamental field? Back in his day, they thought that field was the ether. And um, they was strong belief in the ether all the way up into the year 1905. So what I did with the unified field theory, Einstein's unified theory, field theory, I actually deconstructed it a little bit. So when you get through with it after I uh, uh, re- deconstructed it, it's actually the electrostatic field and the magnetic field uh, and gravity emerges aspects of a single fundamental field which in this case, it actually does turn out to be the ether. So um, what are those aspects? They're really different types of bending of space. So three different types, three different aspects of the, sing- of the bending of the single fundamental field, which is the ether field. So that's basically it. You figure out how those fields are created uh, uh, the mechanics behind it, and then you will uh, understand the unified field theory, and that's what I did in my book. I broke it down and then rebuilt it back up again. All right. So, so gravity, static electricity, and, and magnetism are all part of the same field? Yes, they're different aspects. So let me break that down, uh, explain that a little better. An electrostatic field charged the Coulomb force is the basic fundamental field of the universe, the most fundamental primary field other than the ether. And what the electrostatic field is, a charge like an electron, let's say, is a twist of space, or as Einstein would call it, a convolution, a twist of space, uh, and basically a 180-degree turn. And I have uh, little shells that I get from the beach that I use an example. We're not doing video today, but these little shells, you can see them as they spiral around and get wider and wider from the very tippy point at one end until they expand outwards. So that's a twist of space. The electrostatic charge is a twist of space. And when that happens, that structure that forms creates within that structure a pressure field. And uh, because it expands as it twists from one end to the other. And that's what causes 
charges all charges to move and motion is necessary for the unified field theory to work. So once charges start to move, as they move through space, since they're twists, they cause the space to turn as they go by, that rotates. Mm -hmm. That rotation of space is the magnetic field. So electromagnetism is moving charge. And when that charge moves, it causes a rotation about space as it's moving within it, not through it, within space. So charges are made up of the ether, of the ether field. And so now we're already two-thirds of the way solved. Electromagnetism with James Clerk Maxwell, he got two-thirds of the way there, and he was able to establish also the speed of light uh, having to do with permeability and permittivity, things that exist, their properties of space, the ether. So there's evidence mounting in my book all the way through. I build up the ether again, uh, proving without a doubt it exists. And that is the fundamentals field. Now we're at two-thirds of the way there. The only thing left to do is to solve gravity, which Einstein worked on, successfully described to a degree. He didn't get down to the fundamental cause. Once uh, we get to the fundamental cause, which I do in my book, I explain the, what causes gravity. And he was so close. He, he uh, understood that and made this very important principle the equivalence principle, which basically said acceleration and gravity are the same thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so what's left to do is I discovered the, the foundational cause of gravity. Again, it's caused by a motion, accelerated motion. Whenever a particle that has mass accelerates, its mass increases. Basically, unbalanced charges, fundamental, unbalanced fundamental charges that accelerate travel in a circular motion like quarks inside of neutrons and the protons and electrons in its orbitals. These things all generate mass because they're accelerating. Accelerated motion, a, a, mo a uniform type of a circular motion is what's necessary for them to form mass. Uh, so... What happens when that happens, you get um, a contraction of space, and that's the final puzzle piece. So accelerating particles, unbalanced charges, uh, cause a contraction in and around those particles. That contraction is the fundamental cause of inertia and gravity and mass. So in the book, I explain it in much greater detail, much more thoroughly. But basically, that's the unified field theory, and I got the idea from Einstein. You know, he also he came up with the uh, equivalence principle, and he came up with the model that nobody really recognized, but maybe a very very few physicists today take it seriously. What he said in his happiest um, his happiest thought. Are you familiar with Einstein's happiest thought? Uh, no, I'm not. Oh, I'll tell you, because it links everything together. Uh, this comes from Amir D. Excel's book, uh, God's Equation. 
Einstein followed the line of reasoning that began with the happiest thought of his life. Still at the Swiss patent office, he conducted one of his famous thought experiments. Einstein imagined a circle spinning in space. The center of the circle did not move, but its circumference was moving quickly in a circular direction. Einstein compared what happens in several reference frames, a standard tool that he used in developing the special theory of relativity. He concluded, using his special relativity, that the boundary of the disk contracted as it spun. I underline that for everyone who's listening. I'm going to read it again. He concluded, using his special theory of relativity, that the boundary of the disk contracted as it spun. There was a force acting on the circle at the boundary. This was the centrifugal force, and its action was an analogous to that of the gravitational force. But the same contraction that affected the outer circle left the diameter unchanged. Thus Einstein concluded, in a way that surprised even him, the ratio of the circle to the diameter was no longer pi. He deduced the presence of a gravitational force or field, the geometry of space was non-Euclidean. It was bent was not flat anymore and it was a contraction so gravity is really nothing more than a contraction of space the final aspect that we talk about from the single bent fundamental fields gravity is a contraction of space electrostatic charge is a twist of space when that charge moves a magnetic field emerges and that's a rotation of space the final aspect of space gravity is a contraction of space which is caused by the uh, accelerated motion of unbalanced charges so you've got the whole theory right there rock solid very sensible unlike what you get from quantum mechanics it's all basic field theory where the fields are generated actually by particles mm -hmm. in motion right um so from my understanding of what you just said, uh, there has to be two other, there's two denominators to this. One is that it sounds like there has to be motion, constant motion. Yes. Because, because that's in, essential to creating all these different, the, the, the contraction for the gravity to create the electromagnetic field. And, and um, oh, what was the other one? Well, the charge, the, the motion charge. of charge makes the magnetic so, field the motion of the electromagnetic field makes gravity right um but but where i kind of get stuck is um for, for all this motion to happen um doesn't there have to be some other energy to to, to maintain the motion you see that's a very good question i am very pleased that you asked that question. Uh, remember when I was talking about the charge? That's the key. In my book, I, I talk about, I make a discovery, another discovery, which is basically what I call the slip wave. Inside the charge, what gets this whole universe and brings it to life is motion. And that motion has to come from within the charge. So let's go for an example, and I'll tell you, in nature, you'll find that pressure is just about the cause of everything that's in motion. Pressure, water pressure, the 
through the pipe, the water moves because of pressure. Uh, voltage pressure causes electrons to move. Um, airplanes get lift because of pressure on the bottom and the top of the wings. Uh, engines have pressure movement motion caused by the compression and expansion of gas within the engines. Pressure, pressure, pressure is the cause of motion. So when I realized that, I looked for motion, what caused particles to move? Because without that motion, nothing happens. As Einstein said, nothing happens until something moves. That was a very deep and profound statement because the universe comes to life because of motion. And finding the cause of that motion was essential in understanding the unified field theory. So I discovered what I called the slip wave, which is a pressure gradient that exists inside of the particle. Now I'm gonna give you an example of motion that the pressure gradient is outside of the particle or what you could imagine as a particle. If you imagine at the bottom of an ocean, a bubble forms, sort of like a particle, right? It's a spherical thing. And it always rises to the top. So it has a velocity moving upwards, which is a velocity is a motion to, in a direction. So it always moves up because of pressure. The higher pressure at the bottom of the ocean pushes actually on the bottom of the much less dense, much less, you know, dense particle of the bubble. And it pushes it up from the bottom up because there's a pressure gradient in the ocean. The lightest pressure at the top of the ocean, the strongest pressure at the bottom. The bubble is literally pushed up through the medium and it acquires motion. So now realizing that, I said, well, how do particles move? They're in a medium. That medium is the ether. But the ether is isotropic. It's the same in all direction. So it can't get it from, the motion of particles can't come externally. It has to be built into them internally. A perpetual motion has to come from within them. So I had to understand the structure. And when I understood it, and I broke it down using mining experiments over many years of thinking, mainly late at night when I couldn't sleep, I was able to devise a system that really originated way back when in Maxwell's time when he was using the ether to describe the photons and light and, and energy in that time. So they had the vortex model. And I, I, I realized that they were really onto something there. I thought that was a joke for so long. And then I thought, that's really the only deformation of space that could cause particles to move. So the slip wave is a pressure wave that exists inside of particles. And that causes the motion of, of all particles. Without it, they don't move. And they, you know, they have less density at the front of the particle. And uh, as it expands backwards, it gets less and less. So they basically form like little bubbles in space with a direction and, uh, and a polarity. So that's how particles move. And without this, the universe breaks and dies instantly. So that's that's the cause of motion, and that answers really your question. So that's so the this, key. So the slip wave is perpetual motion. Yeah, it's autonomous per, or perpetual motion because the structure of that particle creates a pressure uh, wave within it, 
and that causes the motion because it's getting pushed by the higher pressure on the outside of the particle as the less dense particle is is pushed forward in a direction from the beginning and if I had, if you could see these little she-shells I got, they're very pointy on one end and they just gradually expand outwards in a twisted way. That's exactly what electrons look like or photons. Photons are a little more complex. I won't get into that unless you want to get into that later on because uh, they both, the photon has both a negative and a positive charge. But the electron is much easier. It just has a negative charge. So, and, uh, so, so what I'm picturing in my head kind of is they don't make them anymore, but there used to be a type of engine with like, it didn't have cylinders, but it had like this triangle thing in it and the combustion was spin that. Oh, you're talking about the Wankel? Yeah. Yeah. I remember the Wankel. Yeah. Um, that is just a different type of motor. And the, the Wankel, there's another Wankel. I, I don't know if I should talk about it, but <laughs> the electric or the magnetic Wankel's much more interesting. And it's a spiral shape. Mm -hmm. And that's what you got to think about. These particles are spiral shaped, starting from a little point and then getting wider and wider as the spiral opens up. So you should see this twist starting with a little point, getting wider and wider and wider as it as it rotates around. So I'm so sort of seeing it in a two-dimensional form where you're just right, you need, a three-dimensional form. Yeah, it's a three-dimensional object. So yeah, you need to see this spiral expanding from the very point, one degree, two degrees, six, ten, twenty, hundred and eighty. Mm -hmm. As further it gets out, the wider the expansion of that space becomes the less dense it becomes, that changes the pressure within that. Uh, it creates a pressure wave within the particle from the front of the particle to the back. And, and that's the key. That's the great discovery. Uh, it's one of my happiest thoughts because <laughs> I found the way for the particle to move on its own. It's a really a miraculous thing when you think about it because if we wanted to build a rocket ship to go that fa as fast as a photon, we couldn't do it with all the rockets in there on the planet Earth. With all the energy that we have, we couldn't get it to go that fast, anywhere close to the speed of light. And a particle does it all on its own with no rocket at all through a natural geometric structure, a dynamical geometric structure. It's genius. The only person that could create something so smart is God. Is there a way to tap into this uh, perpetual um, motion for um, an unlimited or free type of energy source? I think people have succeeded and it's been covered up. Uh, I know for sure that power companies own patents that have perpetual motion uh, power generating machines. There's probably more than one way to do it. There's probably some that use magnets. There's probably some that use some sort of, uh, I don't, I, I'll say zero point energy, but mm -hmm. it's more like free energy from space. Uh, there's so many guys out there, you know, with, which you have conspiracy Is this something though that, 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 you know, that, that Tesla was also onto? 
wasn't Tesla on to something where he was able to extract energy just out of the atmosphere? Uh, I, I well, he tried to put he tried to put energy into the atmosphere right. using his Tesla coils. He right. was going to broadcast energy. But I thought he had like a reversed one too that he came up with. Um, not that I am. I think familiar it was called with. like argon or organ, <sighs> something like that. There might have been a project named something like that because he had several of these giant Tesla towers or a couple of them built, one in the east and one yeah. out west. And um, his idea was to really excite the atmosphere with electrostatic charge. Yeah. And then people could just pluck it out of the atmosphere with coils or whatever. Mm -hmm. But. Eh. The power companies didn't like that because they couldn't figure out a way to charge for that. So that was never going to be something that was going to fly, even if he had succeeded. Uh, they needed to run the power through cables that you could put meters on and you can charge money for. You can control the flow of the current as a commodity that, you know, is out there. And doing it just, you know, he's nobly wanting to just make it accessible to everybody for free. Well, if you, you can't make money on it, then it's, it's not going to do, you know, do well for businesses. Uh, their, their models don't work that way, financially mm -hmm. speaking. So um, th but there's if, other people if, if out there. If, if everything, though, is around us is electrically or static electrically charged, there should be a way to absorb that energy and use it. Yeah, there's there's other guys that did. And I can't remember their names right now, but uh, maybe like John Searle, the Searle effect generator. Um, it's one that comes to mind. Uh, basically pulling energy. There's electromagnetic energy mm -hmm. coming from the sun, not just the light, but radio waves and so forth. And, uh, they were able to create like a, an antenna system that were to just grab it and then you have to rectify it so that you can have a charge imbalance or negative charge, let's say. And then you have to store it. You have to store it in capacitors or something. And then you could draw from that to drive some sort of load or whatever. And yeah, there are guys that have done that in the past and they were messed with and they were suppressed. and they finally gave up and um, yeah, there's, there's people out there, but if you're going to build a UFO or, you know, flying saucer, interstellar spacecraft, you need to tap a source of energy that's powerful and is, is driven by either a perpetual motion type machine or some sort of a, like you say, tapping it from mm -hmm. the, the ethers and and using that because you can't run out of fuel out in the middle of space somewhere and odds are to drive the coils the magnetic coils in these interstellar spacecraft you're going to need a lot of current and uh, it has to be readily available and, and solid you know a solid current flow you can't cut the power off when you're in space flight at those kind of speeds speeds at the speed of light and greater than the speed of light so, yeah, I firmly believe that we have this technology. And I, I, I knew somebody many years ago I talked to who worked in a 
power company, I won't name the name, who worked in the patents department. And this person told me that they have patents that would change the world and they just sit on them. Yeah, I so, totally believe that. So, oh, well, it's true. So, <laughs> so how about, like, like, back to the flying saucer thing. Um, do you think the, uh, the, the, I'm sure you've heard of the claims that these uh, UFOs run on something called Element 115? Uh, yeah, that's, that's what's his name there, uh, uh, Bob Lazar. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've looked it over a little bit. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, that, that doesn't really make sense to me uh what well if the element element is so um heavy that it's able to bend gravity i think it does kind of make sense well it, it i i just don't think the model makes sense and so i guess i don't buy into his I wonder if his uh, his explanation is you know based not in in a, a real I don't know, I don't want to be hard on the guy <laughs> uh, I just look at it from my theory and my theory says mm-hmm. they use magnetic fields they need to use magnetic fields so how do you make a magnetic field you have to have a lot of electrons in right. motion. And so you need a power source that generates a lot of electrons. And I think he says in the element 115, uh, somehow they can get power out of it with with using some sort of, uh, I don't know, I can't remember if it's a fusion or a fission reaction or something of Mm -hmm. that nature. But then that requires a fuel source, right? You can run out of one uh, element 115 eventually. And then you would have to, you know, fill up somewhere. I don't know where you get element 115. I don't think it's, you know, naturally occurring very much, if at all. So I'm not going to go with that theory. I'm going to go with what I know and what I think makes more sense. And so so, under your theory, how would it work? uh, There's either my pet theory is that there is a, perpetual motion machine that uses a magnetic configuration and uh, you have to put magnets in motion or, or usually you know charging coils just as you would in a dynamo or something like that there's got to be a way to do that and when you crank that up and you're spinning uh, the magnets around and charging the, the coils you can get immense amounts of power the faster you go once again, you see motion ties into this whole thing again. The greater the motion of the magnets or those coils, whichever you want to move, um, the greater power you're going to get. You can get huge sums of power. You know, we only run our power system at like 60 hertz or 120 hertz or whatever. It, <laughs> let's just think if, if you went at 10 kilohertz. Uh, that would be a much higher energy source. The higher the frequency, the more energy you can pack into that little uh, bandwidth there. <clears throat> so I'm thinking it's, but, you know, it's something to do with, you know, uh, a standard, more efficient uh, dynamo system or some sort. But there's these technologies that the aliens use are 
tens of thousands, if not millions, they may have thought of several different ways of generating the power necessary, maybe some sort of cold fusion. Who knows? I mean, that's one of the things I would like to be able to see someday, how they solve the energy problem so that they could build the interstellar starships. One of the good things to think about is that these starships move way, way faster than the speed of light. And they have to, because you cannot spend a lot of time traveling from star to star. Mm -hmm. It's very dangerous to go at faster than the speed of light. So you want to, you want to get like to Proxima Centauri and maybe that's 4.2 light years. You want to do that in 15 minutes, not, 40 or 50,000 or 70,000 years that it would take us with rockets. <laughs> you want to get there in a hurry because you're going way faster. You're going tens of thousands of times faster in speed of light. And you need to get there in a hurry to be safe. Mm -hmm. So that's be, my, yeah, that's that my, be, can, can that be done with oh, your theory? Uh, yes. Yes. The, the slip wave um, spatial bias drive field, um, you have to understand what determines the speed of light. The fastest thing we have out there right now is the photon. It's a um, balanced charge field. And, um, and that's why it can travel that fast, because it's a balanced charge, not an unbalanced charge. And so it generates no mass. Uh, and that's exactly what a photon is known to do. It's a massless particle that travels always at the speed of light. And how does that do that? Well, Maxwell discovered that. He discovered that C, the speed of light, is equal to 1 over the square root of permittivity times permeability. Just that simple. Well, what's permittivity and permeability? That's the Basically, those are two properties of space having to do with how the charge, electrostatic charge, permittivity, and the magnetic charge, permeability, build and move through space. So if you control permittivity and permeability, you control the speed of light, what value it will be. So since it's in this equation as it is, one over the square root uh, of permittivity and times permeability that means the more of it you have the slower the speed of light the less of it you have the faster the speed of light so you can actually adjust the speed of light if you can control those two things and with the slip wave spatial bias drive using a magnetic field you can cause space to be stretched thinned out and that will drop both permittivity and permeability and I call for those experiments to be done with magnetism to verify that in my book. So it's all there. It's all logical. And I hammer this theory together in ways that it's just inescapable. If you do the work, the evidence is already there to prove what I'm saying right now. So if you want to go faster in the speed of light, you have to control permittivity and permeability. And there is someone who has succeeded in doing that already. And those people are material scientists who are making something called a metamaterial. Have you ever heard of that? No. What is it? Metamaterial is a, a layered, especially layered material that's designed 
specifically to control the permittivity and permeability within this material. Scientists have claimed, and you could look this up on the internet yourself, uh, in ResearchGate and places like that, they have achieved zero permittivity and permeability within these some of these materials, which has many applications that are used because when you shine a light into one of these, that light beam or particle is claimed to move infinitely fast, which makes sense if you use the, com uh, the formula that Maxwell made. Because if you go down to zero, one divided by zero is infinitely fast. It's undefined. And so if you just do a if you can just control the permittivity and permeability and just leave a little bit left you can go 10,000 times as fast as the speed of light 100,000 times as fast a million times as fast and now you can go travel across the universe in a very convenient <laughs> uh way as time basically becomes absolute again because you can be anywhere you want to be in a reasonably short amount of time. If you can go 100 light years in maybe an hour and a half, that's very uh, convenient. It's a very acceptable time frame and a very, you know, has a great applications. You can travel to other stars. You can colonize other planets. This is doable and it's probably already being done now. If you're traveling that fast and you're still... A completely solid form. How do you avoid crashing into anything? Another excellent question. Well, there's considerations because you can't, there's no way that I could conceive of, and I've given it a lot of thought that you can have a radar that's going to go ahead of you. It's not. You're going to be going faster than the photons emitted from any kind of a radar device. Uh, so fortunately space is pretty much empty. So if you're going to go to a, another star, you have to safely get out of the solar system. So we already know on the plane of the ecliptic, that's where all the, most of the objects that we're going to run into, you're going to hit, uh, the plane and ecliptic, you know what that is, right? Like the Mercury and Venus mm -hmm. and Earth, they're all in that same flat plane, you know, expanding outwards, except for Pluto that's kind of in another kind of a orbit. Um, but then there's the asteroid belt. So you don't want to shoot out of the solar system traveling through the plane of the ecliptic because there's a good chance you're going to hit something in the asteroid belt or one of the planets. So what you got to do is you got to go, you know, 90 degrees you want to go up out of the plane of the ecliptic when you're safely out of every you know all the debris in the area then you shoot straight for your star because odds are there's nothing between you and it and if you do hit something it's probably going to be fatal but and maybe that happens to aliens every now and then but i would think that you could map things out you could send probes out which is what I would do first if I were, you know, running the the Earth program, the deep space program. I would send uh, probes out, have them shoot radar beams, collect data all the way to the first sites that they're going to, so you can map it. 
and see if there's anything in the way. And then, um, and then you could shoot a probe there and back if it makes it. Well, it seems like it's pretty safe. We made the probe there and back and it didn't crash. It could take pictures of the planet uh, on another star system, record all that data if it's got an atmosphere or whatever, and then bring that back. And I think that's the way to go about it. That's the logical approach. The safer approach is to send probes out first to nearby stars, analyze the data, and then say, hey, this one over here, it's got everything we need. We should go investigate this planet firsthand. So that's how you do it. That's how you avoid crashing into stuff. Now, if you go infinitely fast, that's just not safe. Uh, because you, you're going to get lost. Because you're going to be out of not just the galaxy, but you'll probably be all the way out of the universe uh, in an instant. And then how are you going to find your way back? Unless you have very good equipment, you know where you came from and everything very precisely executed, you're going to just simply be lost after a second of flight. Uh, you're going to be who knows where in, in the superverse. And uh, that's dangerous. But, you know, traveling faster than the speed of light is very dangerous activity and you have to have good technology and you have to have redundant systems and it's very important to have everything you know great computer systems you got to have all that um two questions actually uh one is um with this type of science does this kind of um redefine what a black hole is I do in my, uh, I have like three chapters dedicated to the cosmology theory and I, I have thoroughly defined the black hole. It's much simpler than what we've been led to believe. Uh, the problem where the confusion with black holes comes in is the Einstein's equations and solutions. They break down when in they, and they create, you know, singularities, which, you know, there's infinities in there. And we know really the black hole is does not have infinite mass. It does not have infinite gravitational field strength. If it did, the universe would die. So it's a limited density. It's a limited mass. It's a limited gravitational field. But that gravitational field is so strong that light can't escape from it anymore. So what is a black hole? It's a neutron star. It's made of neutronium because it, in order for the black hole to exist, the thing that creates the intense gravitational field has to be stable and it has to exist underneath that event horizon. And obviously from experiment or from observations we've seen where, you know, stars explode and they leave neutron stars. And if it's a really big star, it leaves a really big rapidly spinning neutron star. And if it's a really huge star, all of a sudden it's a black hole. Look at the progression. <laughs> Neutronium is what's left in, a, in an exploding star and a bigger exploding star. And then we got a really big one. And then what we find is left is a black hole. Doesn't it make sense that the black hole really is just neutronium, a much denser a larger 
you know, as you get larger and denser, the gravitational field increases. So it's just a much denser neutronium core. That's it. That's, it's, it's all that. It's not a wormhole. It's not a singularity. Uh, if you get the equations right, it's something that's computable and you compute the density of that thing and, and that's what a black hole is. And while we're at it, since you brought up that topic, um, one of my discoveries that I have in the book is that all stars are formed using spinning neutro neutronium cores. And um, so that's one of the discoveries I made. At the, at the heart of the sun is a neutronium core and the neutronium is what gathered the gas, the hydrogen gas. And of course, this core is spinning so rapidly, it doesn't just crush on the surface of the neutronium, it orbits and it builds up a pressure uh, of immense proportions and density, the atmosphere, and it causes the fusion to kick in and start. It's a sensible explanation for how stars are formed. Interesting. Um, how about time? What is time? Uh, time. <laughs> time really isn't real. Um, why it manifests in this world, in this universe, is because we have, again, a physical thing going on here. There's space. You have to have a real physical space in order for time to exist or to be noticeable, to be observable by conscious entities as such as us. So what am I talking about? There's an old formula, distance equals rate times time. So if I want to solve for time, uh, uh, what I got to do is have distance divided by rate. If, in fact, as many scientists believe that outer space is a void made of nothing, it will have, it will not have a distance. You can't have a distance between two points if the stuff in between that two points is equal to nothing, if it doesn't exist. So that distance has to be composed of some real physical material. And since space has already been established to have properties, properties of, of permeability and permittivity, you therefore, and you know it's made of something because the nothing wouldn't have permittivity and permeability. And since my theory, in, which is the same as Einstein's and Lorenz's, says that space is a quasi-elastic solid, and, and there's evidence that, that it is a solid because all particles that move through space, within space, are transverse waves. And transverse waves primarily exist in solids. And all physicists know this. They just ignore it. So there's more rock-solid evidence that space is a thing, a real thing. So if you want to have time, you better have a real thing that has a distance that takes a time interval to traverse. So if I take a meter stick out and I hold it in outer space and put point A in one side and point B on the other side of the stick and I fire a light beam across it, it will take a specific amount of time to cross from the A to the B point. And that's evidence that space has something in it. Because if there was nothing there, it would take zero time 
to get from point A to point B, and we never see that happen. So the reason we have time mm -hmm. is because in this universe, we have a physical, real, objective reality. We have a space that's real. Can we bend it? Yes. Gravity is a bending of space. It contracts it. It makes more of it. So, so, so wouldn't it make more sense to, to bend space in time rather than trying to go faster than the speed of light? Well, you know, there's some popular theories that talk about, you know, creating a deep a wormhole or something like that using gravity. Well, it's lethal and you'll die. Uh, my my theory, my explanation, and my method is so perfect, <laughs> and I didn't really invent it. I discovered it. It's it's a it's a big difference. I'm not the creator. The creator built this whole system because we we need to be able to travel to other planets. We need to be able to get there in real time. Uh, it's got to have uh, you know. It's got to be, you know, tolerable. You got to be able to travel from one point to another in a very short time, even though it's a great distance. And when you're in the slip wave, see what what you haven't brought out, which, you know, unless you were an expert in special relativity, you wouldn't consider this. But if you go beyond the speed of light and you don't, if you aren't in the slip wave bubble, you'll be killed because you'll be crushed because uh, the Lorenz transformations will come into effect when you're at near the speed of light or certainly beyond. Uh, your, your length will contract in the direction of motion until you're a flat pancake. Your mass will increase to near infinity. Uh, all these things are lethal, and time will stop. Well, time doesn't stop. What really stops is the motion of clocks. So it's... Without the slip wave biased bias field, you are unprotected from these things. So with it in force, the, all the Lorenz transformations are neutralized because there's a new effect, because you're expanding space in, instead of causing a contraction, even though you're moving at the speed of light or beyond. Uh, and that's crucial in order to uh, be protected and be safe. You have to do this. This is why when you're in flying saucers, or they say that they make these fantastic maneuvers, you know, instant accelerations to five or 10,000 miles an hour in the atmosphere, doing right turns at a thousand or two miles per hour. That would kill a, somebody in a jet. You couldn't mm -hmm. survive. The inertia would destroy yeah. you. So uh -huh. my system, the system that, that works has got to be this way. The only other way to beat the system kind of the way you're thinking with a bending or something is using stargates, which I talk about in the second to the last chapter of the mm -hmm. book. Um, how about another workaround would be to exit physical form. Like, like turn a human into data and then reassemble it. You know, like when you beam people in Star Trek. No, yeah, that's, I thought about that. And that's incredibly complex and difficult, tedious way to transfer matter. 
I don't know that any, even the most advanced alien species do it that way. That's a neat, geeky alternative, but it's much more efficient to simply go interdimensional as a solid mass. So what you do is you tune space and you walk into a portal and um, using the Stargate technology, which you would in this case be using as a teleportation device, you step through into another dimension. It has another uh, matrix of, uh, what's it, what's it called? A metric difference. You walk in, you walk out into a new dimension or a new area of or region instantaneously. You mm -hmm. basically teleport like what happened in the, uh, the Philadelphia experiment uh, where they use magnetic resonant fields and they inadvertently created a, a teleportation of the ship from one bay or from one, um, not a bay, yeah, I guess it's a bay, uh, to another uh, harbor. And um, so it's much more efficient. You don't want to tear all each and every atom down to its, you don't like it like, like it would be in a, a Xerox machine or something, where you, you know, account for everything and then you reassemble it. That would take all the computing power of the whole planet Earth. Uh, it would be, oh gosh. And then you would have to beam those particles See, to another was, location. What I'm thinking more like, not, not so much breaking it down, but, but condensing it to a mathematical formula. Well, that's very clever. And, and, and then, then transport that for formula and then, you know, expand it back out. Um, that's actually, actually would be great for um, data encryption. Mm -hmm. That form, I looked into trying to do that way back when, many years ago, because I had a, the same idea, basically, for instead of, you're, you're thinking about matter. I was thinking about images and crush an image into a formula and then expand the image back. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I couldn't really figure out a way to um, create the formula that was any more efficient than compression techniques that they used already. So it would be, you're talking about a compression technique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, taking <clears throat> taking you know a human being and and, and breaking it down into uh, uh, you know the smallest amount of, of a mathematical formula, sending that formula, and then reassembling. You know, the problem is is that the formula becomes it's it's going to be unique if it's going to represent you accurately. A absolutely, every every everyone's going to be different, and that so formula is that formula is going to be as long as it's going to turn out to be as long as data-wise as the thing that you're trying to compress. That's it what shouldn't I found. Be, it shouldn't be, though. Because, well, you, because, you because like, like, say, like say a human being is like 90% water, okay? So, so, that, so, so technically that would be like one digit. Yes, but then you have to say, where is that digit going to, you have to store that digit in ran somewhat random locations all throughout the structure 
So yeah, here's a digit, and then seven more spaces. There's a digit here, right. and well, nine that, more well, that's spaces. Where the, that's where the formula would come in. Well, because that formula is going to be complex, because that number is going to be all because, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Believe me, I looked into it. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> My mind bent bent trying to do it. It has Unless, to be possible, though. Well, I, maybe it is. I don't know. Somebody who's better with math. You really need <laughs> what you need is a real math whiz, and then yeah. you describe this model to them, and they and they might be able to do it for you. I'm not a real math whiz, so you know my limited two dimensional thinking on this, you know, sees the problems and doesn't see a way around the problems. But there might be somebody out there that does. So I, I don't know could be on to something (laughs) (laughs) i doubt that (laughs) i don't think i'm that smart well Um, you never know i mean it's a good you know it's a reasonable model i understand what you're saying yeah i mean to me it it just kind of kind of makes sense like if, if if everything that i am now can be stored in one string of dna Mm-hmm. The DNA would already be the compressed model of me. So all you would really have to do is transport that one string of DNA to the next place and then expand it. Well, that's one way of looking at it. but there's because, code- because really the compression has already been done. That's that coding and it, even that is being revealed as something that's probably been created by an intelligent desire so there's another argument for intelligent design basically the dna and the coding in there there's coding in there and who put that coding in there because natural selection uh the random changes most of them will lead to disaster and somehow changes happen and that coding gets changed in just the right way so things still work and um, who put that coding in there? <laughs> Somebody must have, because that's like computer code. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're saying. And they don't understand how this great intelligence and complexity of this computer coding inside the DNA got there. Because natural selection alone couldn't have made that happen in any kind of reasonable amount of time, much longer than the lifespan of the Earth. So something funny is going on. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my theory on that, and my right. thoughts on so, that. So, so based on what I, I've gotten too from you, is that um, is, this is sort of also a, a, I always ask questions in like this weird way. I don't know why, but it's because it makes sense. Um, one, it sounds like you believe that there's a supreme intelligence, which most people would call God, and you also believe in um, extraterrestrials probably intervening. Um, one question would be like, who is God or what is God and why go through all this trouble? Well, there's a lot of people who've gotten to meet God personally to ask those questions and more. And they're all over the internet. Uh, they've written many books. They're called NDEers near-death experiencers and they've gotten to talk to God firsthand and in my book I, I have a an account from an NDE or that's where I got the signature of God discovery from because I went looking for it specifically 
with people who have who have had NDE experiences looking for one in particular. So to answer those kind of questions, I mean, God is an eternal being. He's always been here and always will be here. He's creating infinite amounts of universes, other solar systems, uh, all the other life forms. That's all accounted for. And you're talking about an internal, eternal being who has infinite powers. Um, none of this is difficult for him. You know, the, if you look at the bigger picture, it's, it's impossible for us to comprehend us as just tiny little ratcheted down uh, spirit forms in, in a physical form whose consciousness, consciousnesses are very limited. When you get to the other side, you're not limited anymore and you're connected to the source, God. And all this is comprehensible and understandable. So who is God? God is the eternal being. He was always here and always will be here. And he's a creator and he's always creating. And um, I mean, that's the answer to that question. And there's do, do, many, you, do you think that there's another creator that created God? I've wondered that, but so far I haven't from any of the NDEs I've read, have heard anybody say that. There's always that one great, you know, white light. Most NDEs fall into patterns. Uh, you know, they're not all identical, but there's certain things that reoccur um, in NDEs. And one of them is the great white light of love and compassion and infinite wisdom. And um, there's only one. I've never heard of um, more than one or a group of one or something of that nature. I've heard that there's a connected consciousness. And once you're there, you're connected and you have access to all that knowledge and information there is. You be connected to God, I guess that's how that happens. Um, but so far, I, I'm not aware that there's going to be some sort of an evolution into a God. I, I heard there's something going to be like a gathering where we're re brought back into God or maybe, maybe another God. I don't know. That's beyond my knowledge for sure, but I'm always looking at NDEs looking for evidence to answer those kind of questions that you ask. That's where I go. Uh, if you want to know how things are made, you know, you're studying something, you're studying the creation, you should go to the creator to understand those things. Nobody else is going to know better about the creation than the person who created it. Anything. If, I, if I'm a troubleshooter and I'm working on software and there's a software problem in the program, I go to the guy that wrote that software and I ask him, how does this work? And I get the answers. That's what I did when I wrote this book. Uh, there were times when I went to the source to get the information I needed. Interesting. Um, how about, um, do the re reality, um, do you believe in things like parallel universes or holographic universe theory? And do you think those two theories can only exist as standalones or do you think they can exist um, together? Or do you only think that there's just one material reality? Just taking from 
many people who have talked about those kind of things in NDEs again, or, or even mediums, psychic mediums have connections that also talk about this sort of thing. Uh, yeah, there's loads of parallel universes. According to some of these NDEers, there are infinite amounts of parallel universes, parallel dimensions, and uh, alternate universes, dimensions where the laws of physics are different. Um, it's That's what the creator does and doing it all the time. So they, these things don't exclude one another. You can have all these different variations and um, it's a big universe out there. We humans, we think we're the center of everything. Our Earth is the center of the universe. Our Earth is the center of the solar system. Our Earth is the center of nothing. But it is at the center of God's attention, as we all are, as all the other beings are, as is every atom everywhere in this universe, as every grain of sand is the center of attention of God. Uh, it's It's difficult for us limited human beings in our con limited consciousness to grasp some of this stuff but that's the way it is and when you get to the other side you can grasp all of what I'm saying and it's made sensible hmm. um, does God exist within the confinement of time we're outside. No, no, he's, he's outside of time. There is no time on the other side. There so, is only so, the moment, the eternal moment. And so he, so our he's time, outside of this, this vortex that we're in. Yeah, he's, he's, out, he's, out, he's outside of it and inside of it. Uh, God, we are God. All the atoms are God. The signature of God exists in every neutron and proton in the universe. Um, he created, well, the reason we have time is because he created this physical dimension and universe so that we can experience time and have experiences that make sense. They come in a, an orderly fashion and it's something that our limited consciousness can under, comprehend, understand and work with and have you know, valid experiences. It's all about getting experience here. So, but God himself, there's, <laughs> when you get over there, you'll hear time and time again, people say, there's no time over there. And they have difficulty trying to describe that here because the words really aren't enough to kind of explain it. You know, you'll hear things like a, a moment seems like an eternity and an eternity seems like only a moment. You know, things that, we can't really only have a general sense of not, you know, not a real feel for, I mean, like when you're, um, when you're having a lot of fun, time seems to go fast. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when you're in agony, time seems to slow down. <laughs> like it's awful. I mean, it's an experience kind of a thing. So over there, that, that kind of phenomena is kind of amplified to the point where, you know, time here, you know, they could watch us. They could go into the past. They could see the future. Uh, you could travel through time and space like in an instant, anywhere you want to go. So can God on the other side. He's outside of time. 
It's, it's once again, we're limiting ourselves because we're in a physical body in a physical universe that has certain, you know, restrictions applied to it, physical restrictions that make time and all this stuff happen. There's no restrictions on the other side. You can travel instantly to anywhere you want, not only in space, but in time as well. It's a deep subject. <laughs> is is immortality achievable? Physically or spiritually? Physically. Uh, the, it's possible, to, and I've heard many predictions from ND ears that are, we will eventually advance our medical uh, technologies to the point where we can extend our lifespan to 150, 200, 300 years maybe. The problem is you only have so much life that's, you know, you have a purpose. And when that purpose is fulfilled, it's, you really get bored and it's time to go. And in these cases, you know, you're living 250 years and then you're going to make a decision in the future, according to what they're saying, it's time to, to die. You lay down and you release your spirit and it goes back. Uh, I, I think it's possible that very probable that there's alien species that live in the thousands of years old. old. Um, and of course, there's always people that want to live on forever, you know, especially rich people who have a lot of money and everything's going well. <laughs> they don't want to die, but you know, that's the natural course of things at this time. But I think once we get into outer space, once we, you know, the government admits that we have these starships and allows private companies to build you know, supercars and that I talk about in my book and starships, um, we'll be able to make contacts with alien species. They will be able to help us with our medical uh, research and stuff, and we'll definitely be able to extend the, the lifespan well beyond what it is now. Do you think that? we are the only advanced race to ever exist on this planet or there was a prior group of humans that were advanced and somehow got wiped out as in like the case of Atlantis. Right. Well, well that one famous uh, psychic who's passed away, what was his name? I always forget his name, but there's this one guy, uh, one psychic, Casey, Edgar Casey. Thank you. Uh, he envisioned that there was an Atlantis once, and I, I think he's a fairly credible, one of the best psychics that's ever lived. So I'm going to say, based on what he said, yeah, there there must have been a advanced uh, race of humans that apparently got corrupted. You know, that's always what does in all of these empires is the uh, empires the leadership becomes corrupted and they collapse. And, you know, hopefully that doesn't happen again here, but it looks, it looks like it might. Um, and um, yeah, I think that that probably exists. And I think it's a shame that they can't find it. He predicted it would be off the coast of Bimini somewhere in the Bahamas. And they did find some strange structures under the water there, but so far uh, no great city has been found anywhere, but, I believe that, yeah, it's probably probably was out there somewhere and it got destroyed, went underwater. So that makes me worry that such a cataclysmic event can happen and overnight something could drop into the water and disappear. 
is very concerning to me. It tells me that the, you know, all the mountain structures that I see across the earth and that there's tectonic activity that can be very catastrophic at times. And maybe that was one of the times. And maybe mountains are formed much faster than they think. And volcanoes, super volcanoes can happen, wipe things out. I'm very concerned about our, the Earth's core and its stability and what happened to these these super civilizations that got wiped out like Atlantis. So, yeah, I do believe. Um, how about the idea that, that they became so advanced that they were able to move off planet? And uh, some of what we experience as UFOs are actually humans coming back. It's possible. It's possible that humans have, were made friends with aliens that visited uh, eons ago and were taken off planet and maybe breed, uh, you know, were able to breed with some of these other aliens. I'm, I'm sure they're doing from all these uh, abduction things that I'm hearing about. I'm sure that the aliens are making hybrids uh, and so forth and all kinds of things like that are going on that the normal people, most of the people in this world will never see until some some authority figure like a government like the u.s government or some other government says yes we've seen these people they're here they've been here there's probably underground bases i'm sure underwater bases and there's a whole bunch of things we don't know about that you know are considered conspiracy theories right now that someday will be confirmed um the moon was it put there i don't know i don't know i would know if i could confirm that it has a neutronium core as well as the earth uh, my theory says basically even the planets are fo are formed with smaller neutronium cores and they gather all the materials and gases and so once upon a time, like the Earth was a uh, just a very small, you know, red dwarf or brown dwarf star that basically constructed all of its elements right here through the process of fusion, created the heavier and heavier elements right here. And that's still going on in the core now, if I'm right. And so... It's a highly speculative theory uh, because nobody's going to dream this one up. I mean, I, I dreamed it up because it comes out of the Big Bang Theory that I have where basically all the material that was ne needed to create the universe was within that cosmic egg, that gigantic neutronium cord object. Mm -hmm. And when it let loose, it let loose tremendous amounts of neutron gas along with billions and trillions of various sized neutronium spheres in the in the big blast the bigger ones gathered the galaxies around them uh, the smaller ones gathered uh, enough hydrogen to become stars and those other ones and most of them had little spheres going around them which then gathered the other hydrogen formed eventually formed into heavier elements that became planets. It's a whole workable system that needs to be proven. 
And uh, I have been doing some research to confirm that there is indeed fusion occurring in the center of the Earth. And then all that's left to determine how is it that the pressure is great enough at the center of the Earth to cause fusion to occur? Really shouldn't be. You need something of tremendous mass to create the density down there to, and the pressure to do that. So I suspect that there's a small neutronium sphere there. And, uh, and so there are scientists who have detected neutrinos coming from the center of the Earth. And that only happens if there's uh, fissionable things going on or fusion. So they got to work on that to see if they can nail down if it's fusion or not. Some scientists that would I've we, talked to say it is. Would we be able to create these neutronium spheres, spheres for ourselves on a smaller scale? Well, you know, and, and if we can, that would be like a game changer for, for everything. Yeah, because you could create a, a small, um, if you could suspend this thing, you, that's the trick. You would need to be suspend the sphere in something so it doesn't drop to the center of the earth. And and it can be done by using a my uh, slip wave field. You create an anti-gravity field under it and it basically will float. But, um, the, and there's a lot of physicists that I know I've talked to in certain websites who are studying how small a neutronium uh, star can be. Now, the current thinking is it can't be less to, than maybe the size of Jupiter. Uh, but I got to tell you, uh, that science isn't nailed down. And I think you could have one as small as a golf ball. What they're worried about is if you get to a certain small size, the neutronium becomes unstable and, you know, basically either explodes or just vaporizes into neutrons. It can't hold itself together. But I suspect once you get it to a certain density, the gravitational force is such that it holds it together, even, even a small amount, which then would make it usable for, you know, maybe a fusion reactor or something like that. That's very all speculation, you know. But also, if, if if we did that, say it was like the size of a golf ball. Right. Wouldn't that little golf ball have like an immense amount of gravity and everything would be sort of like sucked into it? Yeah, yes, it would have an immense amount of gravitational pull. It would be a hard thing to handle. It would be like, I don't know how many metric tons of mass it's, it's equivalent to. It, it would definitely put a, a hurting on the planet Earth <laughs> if you, if you, you know, you, you would have to be much smaller than a golf ball. So we would probably have to do something like that in space. Oh well, yeah, you could do it. In we, space. We, if we went out into space where nothing is going to be affected by the gravitational force of it, that would probably be the best way to go about it. Yeah, you just got to determine, you know, what's a safe mass and the safe distance and, and mm -hmm. those kind of things. Um, that's that's where the it's great to have all the great physicists and their minds and their computational skills and the computers all but working. Then, then if we could do that in space, we could do that at, from uh, the correct distance from any star and, and basically create habitable planets. 
Uh, using my theory, yeah, you would you would you would surround the neutronium sphere. With, it needs hydrogen gas to start mm -hmm. with. Then the hydrogen builds into helium. Then the helium and the hydrogen, you know, they eventually get carbon and then oxygen. And then you get all these things, but you need a lot of bulk gaseous material to make that happen. And it takes billions of years, uh, according to my theory, for that to happen. So uh, it's, in theory, you could make a planet, uh, if my theory is right. Yeah. Interesting. Trying to think of a way that, that your theory could be used in that way, but without taking billions of years. Mm. Um, I don't know. It, there's a process. You got to stick to the process. Um, you know, alien civilizations would probably not go that route. They would just take a planet, a pre-existing planet, and then terraform it, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, well, add the elements that are missing, you know, like Mars. Mm -hmm. Mars would be a great planet to, you know, add what you need. You need oxygen. It's already got some CO2, so you should be able to grow plants pretty well. Then the plants are going to make the oxygen, and um, boom, pretty soon you've got, maybe you got an atmosphere that's usable. Interesting. So if our planet has a neutronium core, and let's say that 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 core gets um, overactive or too hot, and it starts causing all kinds of volcanic activity and tectonic shifts and stuff like that. Is would there, in your theory be a way to reverse that? I think that's beyond any technology we have. Something down there is going on because it's not cooling off. I mean, we got a molten, you know, inner core there, uh, and that's it's never cooling off. It should have cooled off by now. So the only way to explain that it's not cooling off is that either there's a tremendous amount of fission going on down there, or there's a tremendous amount of fusion, and that fission or fusion is keeping it hot. So that's the only reasonable explanation for that. that well, maybe the Earth is not natural. Maybe aliens used what I just described to create the Earth. Well, that's a possible. I, you know, it's a long shot because I don't. I don't think it's necessary or that aliens are involved with creating their own planets and stuff. I, I think the natural causes and courses are of of the universe are creating planets and stuff all the time and that's a it's a process that takes a long time to happen but it's it's happening a lot and you're in the billions and trillions and trillions of new planets and stars coming about all the time throughout the universe so that's already kind of being done the trick is getting to them right if you want to you know find a planet that's just at the right stage where the plants are first plants are arriving. That's the kind of thing you want done. All the work's already been done for you over billions of years. Now you just get there and you need a way to get there quickly. That's where the, the slipway bias drive comes in. So now they can get there like they were visiting earth well before humans probably were around. And, uh, 
they've been there and they've apparently were clever enough to decide to build underground bases and underwater bases and they use the earth not as a really as a colony but as a just a way station and maybe as a a place a safe haven for their species just in case their planet or the solar system goes bad which is going to happen everywhere it's going to happen here now that might be billions of years from now but it's going to happen for sure we've got several ways it can end the core could go <laughs> we can have super volcanoes that wipe us out we can have a giant asteroid that wipes us out or a comet um eventually the sun is going to burn out it's going to become a, a red giant and cook us that's going to happen for sure <laughs> not not uh, uh if it's going to happen it's a, just a when uh, and then the whole solar system our whole galaxy is rapidly accelerating towards something called the great attractor which is we think a supermassive black hole so our galaxy along with several hundred others in our galaxy cluster are all moving toward that and that's going to wipe all of that out this is going to happen and if you don't have a way to get off the planet that's the problem your race will not survive those kind of events unless you're somewhere else the best way to avoid a punch is not be there when it happens and so what i'm offering is a solution for long-term survival of the human race if there's a, a super black hole that all the galaxies are being sucked into, then that means that at some point we have to escape this universe. Well, the universe is going to, according to my theory, it's, it's a cyclic universe. It's, going, it's already in the collapse phase, and there's considerable amount of evidence that supports that theory. It's not in the expansion phase, as we're being told by some, the popular uh, mainstream physicists and media um, it's if you look at the bigger picture and there are astronomers that have done this they've mapped out the known seeable universe and they've seen like our our galaxy cluster it's called the Lanakia galaxy cluster and there's several hundred galaxies are all we're not moving away from each other. We're all gradually moving toward each other and toward this tractor. They're certain of that. And there's other great uh, voids or, or these great um, black hole things out there that other star, other galaxy clusters in the thousands are moving toward. And, and so that's explaining why it appears that the galaxies are accelerating away from us they're actually falling toward, and that's where their acceleration is coming from, not the expansion of space. It's mm -hmm. the contraction, and they're being pulled by a natural known force, gravity, toward these big black holes, which are eventually all going to merge, because the great attractor is actually being pulled toward an even bigger one, a bigger black hole. And, and that's happening right now as well as I've discovered in my book, thanks to the work of uh, uh, Barry Satterfield, that uh, the speed of light is slowing down, even though it's been covered up by physicists. That's a big 
story I get into in the book explaining what's happening there. But that's clear indication that there's a contraction of space going on. When space contracts, the speed of light slows down. It is a well-known fact. You shoot a beam into a gravitational field, that beam of light will slow down. It's already happening, and it's being covered up because science is so uh, oh, it's so frustrating. So we have to get over these things so we can move ahead and we can evolve. And why, why is science covering up so many of these discoveries? Well, it's, it's like this, like for the speed of light controversy. Uh, there is a guy, uh, his name was Raymond Burge. Uh, when, this, when they were measuring the speed of light over the past two centuries, uh, it started with um, James Bradley, a British astronomer in 1729. He basically estimated that the speed of light was 301 kilometers per second. Then the question was, is the speed of light constant? And they started measuring it over the years, over the next few hundred years. As they did this, every so often, it seemed that the speed of light was a little slower than before. Even sometimes when they used the same exact equipment and repeated the experiment a few years later, it was slowing down. This could not be explained away easily. <laughs> And the first, uh, you know, they said the measurements were rough and maybe that was something to do with it. But over time, they used the same equipment, they used better equipment, and it's, the numbers were still going down. And then around in the 20th century, Raymond Burge, a highly respected chairman of the physics department at the University of California, Berkeley, had from 1929 on established himself as an arbiter of the values of atomic constants, speed of light being one of those and, and the, this didn't work for physicists in, in this time. The speed of light is considered an atomic constant. However, Burge recommended values of the speed of light decreased. They noticed that they decreased steadily until 1940 when an article written by him entitled The General Physical Constants uh, in the August 1940 with the details of velocity of light appeared in those reports, Progress in Physics uh, Journal, Volume 8, so much. Burge began the article saying, this paper, and I'm going to answer, this is answering your question as to why they're doing this. This paper is being written on request. And at this time, on request, a belief in any significant variability of the constants of nature is fatal to the spirit of science. Underline that. Capitalize it. That's your answer. It's fatal to the spirit of science. As science is now understood, emphasis is. These words from this man, for whatever reason he wrote them, shut down the debate on the speed of light. They just don't want to hear it. They got a prejudice. They've got a bias. And, you know, they're married to their ideas. And it's really They're not science. <laughs> that's exactly right. And it gets worse. Uh, <laughs> it, they, he, at that point, he just declared the speed of light a number. He says, we're going to go with this number, and that's it. And from now on, what we're going to do when we measure the speed of light, we're not going to measure the speed of light. What we're going to do is tune the equipment to this number, 299,792, 458 kilometers per second. 
you're going to turn your equipment to that number. And then when you get it, that's going to be this, the, the starting point for your measurements. So they shorten or lengthen the, the, the distance that they're, you know, timing across and measuring, which used to be a, you know, a, a solid, you know, device made a meter long. And then maybe they would multiply it by some number so that they can get a more accurate reading. But they used to measure the distance and then uh, a specified distance and say, that's the speed of light. But the problem, whenever they did that, it was slowing down. So to fix the problem, they say, now, and this is the way they measure the speed of light, now we're going to use this number. And it's always going to be this number. You keep adjusting your equipment until you get that number. And that's when you start measuring the speed of light. So they're not measuring the speed of light anymore. They're measuring the distance of a meter. And, and you can see this on Quora. It's been in Forbes magazine articles. How do we measure the speed of light? And it just goes through what I just told you. If the speed not of, science. If, if, if the speed of light is slowing down, does that mean that time is slowing down too? Now, as the speed of light slows, yeah, um, it's like the gravitational field. And in a gravitational field, time slows down as it gets stronger and stronger. So the speed of light is slowing down. So you're, you're not going to notice it because it's so subtle, <laughs> so small. But yes, well, the thing of it is, it's not time. Time is really, in my opinion, absolute. And I know every physicist would cringe at me saying that, but it's not a real thing. It's not a physical thing. It can't be affected. But what is affected is the clocks that measure time. They slow down. And we're, we're misinterpreting that and saying time is slowing down. No, it's not. It's the clocks that slow down. Time can't be affected by anything because it's not a physical you can't hold in your hand uh 10 grams of of time it's not possible it's not a thing you can't you can't affect it <laughs> what you can do is you can slow down the clock and it would be it would appear that time is slowing down but it's not there's absolute time that it's an experience uh, of an interval and you're, you're affecting that interval by slowing time down in a contraction of space, which is what's happening. Space is contracting. All the clocks are slowing down. Uh, and it gets back to the special relativity and the misinterpretation of special relativity, which I go into the book. I talk about time there. And, um, and I talk about how to fix the misinterpretations of special relativity, especially this concerning time. And uh, the way to tell if you're moving uh, or not moving relative to the spatial background is time will move faster than anything anywhere else, any other moving frame of reference. So if you go at zero speed and you're, and you're in a space that's not contracted at all, time will go slightly faster to, for you. Your clocks will move slightly faster. So it's not time that's slowing down, it's the clocks. Um, 
So in some experiments, they've discovered that matter behaves differently when it's observed rather than when it's not observed. Um, does your theory cover any of that? Well, that's, that's a quantum mechanics phenomena, and it's, it's a measurement problem. And the physicists might want to argue with me about that, but when you measure any particle, you observe it, you're affecting it because you can't observe it without bouncing something off of it to detect it or having its fields touch some other fields that slow it down, change its directions or whatever. This is somehow being misinterpreted into saying it's our consciousness because the consciousness is determining what you do in the experiment. It's determining how you build the experiments, determining the detectors used. So, it, you know, they're assuming that it's really our consciousness that's somehow affecting. No, no, it's the way you do the experiment. It's the way you observe the experiment. It's got, it's not like the particle itself is, is uh, saying, oh, you're looking at me. I'm going to do this now. Yeah, see, that's I have a lot of problems with the interpretations in the field theories of quantum mechanics. They're deeply flawed, and this is going to come out eventually. It's only a matter of time because as we use or attempt to use quantum field theory to solve problems, here's the problem. What if quantum theory is wrong? This is the soft underbelly of the whole project of quantum gravity. If quantum theory is wrong, then trying to combine it with gravity will have been a huge waste of time. I was spoken by Lisa Molin. Quantum mechanics has got some serious problems. It's a great mathematical system if you want to do statistical probability analysis on the huge numbers of measurements. Works great for that, but it will never tell you how and why things work. And it shouldn't be used for that. Therefore, it cannot be a theory of everything. That's what they'll eventually find out. So uh, what is consciousness then? If consciousness exists outside of the body in a near-death experience, mm -hmm. that means consciousness is not our brain. Then what is it? Right, right. Brain is just like an interface mechanism. It's like a machine that allows our consciousness through the power of God, through the power of intention, to be used by the consciousness while we're here on the physical plane. So when the body dies and the brain dies, the consciousness is released back into its true form, its native form, which is some sort of energy that's indestructible, that's eternal. And it goes back to the source at that point if it's got the right state of mind about itself. Uh, if it isn't hung up in attachments to this world or with a great deal of anger, it's an energy and it's eternal. The body is not, the body is just like some people call it a, uh, <laughs> um, uh, a meat suit, <laughs> uh, spirit in the flesh, whatever. Uh, it's consciousness is, the, you know, I'm still studying. It's a, you know, it's a great mystery. It's the, one of the greatest mysteries of all, but it's it's the real thing. It's the real world. As you will see when you get to the other side, that reality is more real than this one. And that's said by 
hundreds and thousands of NDE people. That place is more real than this place. That place is home, not here. So, so the, consciousness is not something that's just in my brain or experienced through the five senses. It, it is a separate type of energy. If it's a yeah. separate type of energy, is it an energy that can be measured and used? Well, I mean, they've done some experiments. They tried way back in the 70s. They put dying people on a scale and accurately measured their weight all the way up until they died. And they weighed the same after they died as when they were alive. So whatever it is, doesn't weigh anything. Um, there's people nowadays that do experiments with psychics and mediums. They do measurements and everything to try to determine how, how things work and what can be done and what can't be done. That energy, I, I really don't know about. I mean, I would have to, you know, talk and, and I constantly review near death experiencers looking for that kind of information, but it's a different kind of energy than we think about here where there's particles in motion and the more energetic they are, you know, the more, you know, the, the, rap, the faster they move, it's a whole mechanical system. This is not a mechanical system on the other side, not anything like what we have here. The dynamics are, are completely driven by the power and intention of God. So, it's hard to probe that without just listening to NDEs and finding out what they say. So if you want more information on that, definitely start listening to all these NDEs or getting some of their books or whatever and, mm -hmm. and read about the details. That's what I do. I go into their all. I, I want to hear exactly what they're told when they're there, what they experience. And, and you'll get some answers to some of those questions. Um, do you think, um, do you believe in like the idea of like the Akashic records that, that people can leave their bodies, access some infinite source of window wisdom and, and then return back to the physical form and use that wisdom? Well, Edgar Casey did that. And yes. I've known other psychics that, they also call it the book of life, mm -hmm. the Akashic records. Yeah, that, that exists. That's, that's been told, talked about it by NDEs, psychic mediums, Edgar Casey. you know, yeah, I definitely know that exists. So to me, that makes it sound like that everything is just information. Well, uh, it's, it's a tricky thing because you got the future involved and the future is always in motion. And so, Part of that record, things are all, time is happening in parallel. It's all happening at once. I don't fully understand the future part because you can make it, I know you can make a prediction. I've had it happen to me uh, because I have this, this, this question about time and the future and how can you access this information like you're talking about in the record. And I, I prayed to my guardian 
angels when I was young and I was in crisis to, to show me, uh, I said a prayer as I fell asleep, you know, can you really predict the future? And I had a dream that night. And in that dream, I was just morning time and I was, I was in park my car in the parking lot and I was walking into work at IBM and, uh, and I, it's a big parking lot. So, you know, you park at different places. It's pretty random how I walked in from that parking lot to my, uh, my office and I'm in the, in this dream. It's a very real dream. It's, it's in color, which is very rare for me. And there's a sunrise coming up and I'm walking along and I look down and I see this dime heads up sitting on one of the stripes in the parking lot, parking stripes. And I say, huh. <laughs> and then I wake up. It's the middle of the night. And I said, well, that was an interesting dream. It was pretty real. And then I fell back to sleep and I forgot about it. So when morning comes, I get to work, I get ready to go to work, I drive in, I park in the parking lot, and I'm walking in and I'm looking at the sunrise coming up over the buildings. I say, huh, this is familiar. And I'm thinking about that, and as I'm thinking that, I look down, I look at, and I see a dime sitting heads up on the stripe, just like in my dream. And when I saw that, I, it, it all rushed back, and I said, Oh my God, I dreamt this last night. This is proof. You can see into the future. And I took that dime in. I took it to, I took it to my office mate and I told him the story. And he says, well, I'll take it home. I'll put a little drill hole in it. And you can wear it. And I got it as a little necklace that I wear sometimes as a reminder about that story. So, you know, there's a lot of mysteries out there. There's a lot of mysteries uh, because we're spiritual beings in a physical, having a physical experience, basically. It's an, we're in kind of a version of heaven, uh, you know, a hologram, if you want to say, that's probably all in the mind of God and created by God. All of it. All of it. So, so, so you think that God could be like a great cosmic dreamer? Yeah, you could say that, and and we we humans or we beings, and there's you know infinite amounts of various beings out there, are just like you could think of them as single strand. Their lives are single strands in a giant tapestry that is God, and and our lives are single strands in the tapestry of our lives. So the more lives you have, you build a bigger and bigger tapestry of your individual lives. And all of this is compiled into the experience that God is having through us. And there is, and the ears have said exactly that. That's what's happening. He's, God himself is experiencing the universe through an infinite amount of beings and, and experiences. This is his way of experiencing everything that can be experienced. It's deep. <laughs> <laughs> it, it gets to be hard to comprehend because you're looking at things that are massive, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of, you know, or an infinite amount of beings all having life experiences that are returned to the creator when they come back. 
going into the Akashic Book of Records or the Book of Life. It's uh, how is the future built in? Well, the future is always formed based on the past and the present. It's changing it all the time, but it happens. Our lives are planned before we're born. Uh, and then we get to use free will and choice to make choices here in this world to experience life. It's, it's all part of a gigantic uh, hologram, if you want, of, of crea uh, all created by the supreme being. Do you think that, what, what do you think Einstein would think of that theory? Einstein, he had a slightly different idea of God than I had. He had a belief that God, it's similar, he believed that God created the universe and then he stepped back and let it go. And he, God was not involved at all in the existence in the lives of the beings, human beings. Now, I'm a theist, so I believe, yes, God created the universe but he's actively involved in all the beings and it's still creating. He's not just created and stepped back. He's co-creating with the beings of this universe as we create as well. So that's the difference between I and Einstein. He had just mm -hmm. kind of a universal God who did his thing and then stopped. And I'm saying he's deeply involved with the, the people of all the worlds, including everyone on earth. There's no exceptions, all 8 billion people. We all have guardian angels. We all have a life plan. We all you know, need to try to execute that plan, remember it and execute it as closely as possible so that we can achieve the most valued positive experiences. And unfortunately, many people, when they get here, they forget because they go across the veil of forgetfulness they're born and they get distracted. They get distracted by the material things in this world and don't have a good a life experience. They don't get their work done that they needed to get done here. And that's what we're all about. That's what this book's about. I'm trying to finish my work. I need to do this stuff. I need to get this done. I need to communicate this information to the people so they can have better lives. And uh, how do we do that? Like, Why? Like, 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 how does a person get past that forgetfulness and, and the involvement in the physical world and day-to-day -day life and just survive? I mean, survival sometimes just alone is really, really difficult. Mm. Well, you're never alone. That's one of the illusions. You think you're alone. But I can tell you through your whole life, you've had at least one or two, maybe three or more guardian angels with you. They've guided you to what you're doing now. You believe in what you're doing. You love what you're doing. That's the best indicator that you, you're on the right path. You're on your first best destiny. Uh, it took me a long time to get here, but that was in my life's plan. That's what I was told <laughs> when I tried to find out ahead of time using psychics. Uh, once I found out about this time that I'm in now and this discovery. Um, I tried to make it happen early, but he says, you can't make it happen early. You have to go through the experiences. This is your plan. We're only going to tell you so much and they're very limited. If you try to go to psychics or mediums, uh, the best way to find out what you want to do in your life is you got to trust your heart. 
do what you love and um, pray. Pray basically to your guardian angels, to God, and they will send you messages. That's what they do. They guide you. The spirit guides, that's their job, to keep you safe, help you execute your plan, whatever that plan is that you agreed on before you were born. And if you read enough about psychic, uh, about NDEs, uh, there's one uh, NDE I read about that says before people are born, they actually go to classes. They're trained for this experience because it's an incredibly difficult, challenging thing to do. A lifetime is not easy. Don't kid yourself. It's challenging. God knows that. You're prepped for it. You're, pray, you're, you're prepared. You go. You, you solemnly swear that you're going to try to do your best to remember what it is in this life you need to do. And there's millions of people that fail at that. And there's millions of people that succeed or have varying degrees of failure and success. No experience is considered bad. All experience is, is good, basically, whether it's a positive or a negative thing. It's just, it's, it's desirable, more desirable for God and you to try to achieve, find and achieve your first best destiny and live that out. Make good choices. That's, that's part of the key. Making good choices, making wise choices, seeking wisdom instead of just knowledge. Mm -hmm. Truth and not truth plus knowledge equals wisdom. Hmm. Well, I would say I probably spent the first 25 years of my life making bad decisions. <laughs> Sure. And those bad decisions are not, you know, judged bad by God. I mean, it's, it's something you tried. It's free will and choice here. So um, have at it. Enjoy the experience. Enjoy the ride. Just try to do, you know, make good decisions. Just try harder. Um, when it comes to praying or asking for guidance, do you, the, does God do you think, well, this is sort of like a personal question. Do you think God cares whether we believe in him or not? And do you think that he favors people who believe and disfavors people that don't believe? I don't think God is like a punisher. And you're getting into what humans think yeah. God is, not necessarily what God really is. Because when NDEers go over there, they find that God is very is completely non-judgmental loves every human being no matter what their faults and the people when they get there and go through the life review find that the, he god does not judge you jesus does not judge you it's you judge yourself you know the truth of your life and it's unavoidable there it's all exposed it's all seen it's all experienced and and you're the judge and um you got to learn to forgive yourself as well as others and um, it's, it's just the way it, it, it works. That's the way the system works. And it's a good system. And, and it's been going on for eons. And it looks like it's going to go on for quite a while longer. So it's a good system. And, and God uh, is not a, a punisher. I don't think so, really. I know it's kind of taught that, especially in the Old Testament. Um, there are reckonings that happen, and it's usually because of 
bad behaviors of people that eventually lead to a balancing, a natural balancing of things. And, and that usually means civilizations get wiped out. There's a great deal of suffering. And uh, when people, enough people get so thoroughly distracted from uh, living good lives and, and living by the golden rule, which is what God and Jesus and everyone on the spirit world wants us to do, you know, treat others as you would be treated yourself. You know, you want to uh, care for and be compassionate uh, for your fellow human beings. If you, you live by the golden rule, uh, things are going to work out better. You're going to have better lives and you're going to have less disasters. You're going to have less, you're going to have no wars eventually if you do that, uh, much less sin against each other and you'll have better lives. And that's what God is trying to do and he's trying to communicate that to people more and more especially through ndes now and people are getting on the right path he's telling you tells them directly you're not doing your work this is what you should have been doing this is what you're going to do when you get back and believe me when they get back for the most part those people are deeply inspired by what they experienced and do that work and basically that work is communicating to others that there is an afterlife. God is real. God what did create the universe. Multiple times I've heard him talk to uh, other people and describe, hey, I created this universe, and this is how I done it. The, I created the laws and the rules of science and physics. And eventually, I think what we're going to see is that science will be, uh, well, religion will eventually subsume science. And the scientists of the future will be very religious, very spiritual people. Wow. Well, that sounds pretty hopeful. Yeah. You know what? No matter what happens, what, what gives me the greatest comfort now, and I have these moments where I feel this peace, it's fleeting, it comes and goes. But I feel like, and I've heard so many times them say, it always turns out okay. In, in other words, even if there's great battles and wars and suffering, in the end, good will always win out. God will always win out. And evil may win the battle, but they never win the war. Hmm. And so we could suffer, we, you know, depending on our choices and whatever. But in the long run, it's always a good ending, and especially for us individuals in life who keep the faith, try to live good lives, and they pass away, they get to go to heaven or a level of heaven. Uh, the people who are really bad, really angry, atheists, whatever, uh, they have a longer path before they get there. They may do some suffering. They may stay as ghosts. They may see a hell, and some people do uh, uh, when they have a near-death experience to tell other people, hey, you know what, there is a hell. And the people who are there are there because actually they just refuse to believe in God and they refuse to let go of their anger. And, and that's the place they go, not because God sends them there, but that's what they basically are, are believing in and desiring. And until they can wake up, and how does that happen? Now, I can tell you of a case, a man named Howard Storm, who was an atheist and was a successful um, 
a teacher at a, I think it was, I don't know, Harvard or Yale. I, I forget the school. It was a big school. I'm not sure of the school. Uh, professor. And uh, he, he'd had a near-death experience. And the initial part of it was very unpleasant. Uh, he was in the room. He saw his dead body. He was walking around trying to talk to the doctors and nurses, and nobody could hear him. But then there was these people there that could hear him. And they say, hey, we've been waiting for you. Come with us. And so he starts following them, and he's walking and walking, and it's getting grayer and foggier, and he's, like, losing track of where he's at. And these people start saying mean things, and they get more and more vicious. Then they finally start attacking him. And it's, it's horrible. And, and then he, he hears a voice say, pray to God. And this guy is so anti-religious and, and never went to church. or He didn't even know how to pray. And he says, I don't know how to pray. And the voice says, pray to God. So he makes up a prayer. And when he starts praying, the people that are attacking him, you know, start screaming and pull back because they don't want it god around so as he prays to god he's starting to make the connection and eventually he he does this they leave and he sees this little pinprick of white light and then he goes to that and then he meets god so there's a lot of different kinds of scenarios uh in the near-death experiences have most of them are pleasant but some of them are not it depends on your frame of mind when you die Well, at least it sounds like hell may not be a permanent thing. It's it's more of a state of mind than it is a place. As I understand it. Right. right. Yeah, I, I kind of get that. You know, I've always kind of felt that, that even here in his form, I think, you know, certain people choose to kind of live in a hellish type of life exactly the way the, the yes thing. hell can be right here on earth and it is for for many people and it's heaven here too sometimes it's it's both mm -hmm. it depends on your situation and what you believe interesting well i think this is a good place to um to end on a positive note um, would you like to tell my listeners where they can find you and find your book? Sure. Uh, the book is called The Master of Reality. It's basically about the unified field theory solution. Uh, there's also many other topics involved in the book. And I talk about the whole theory behind the theory of, of super relativity, how I got to it and so forth. And the book is, uh, Call Master of Reality, and it's you can get it on Amazon, or you can go to my website, www.super-relativity.com. And you, you'll, there's links right on the front page to go to Amazon, or you can, if you want a signed copy. I'm, at this time, I'm still offering signed copies of the book that I mail to you. Um, and that's only in the U.S., USA only because the shipping is too much to go anywhere else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I can manage the price and set it at a proper level. And um, that's where you can get it. www.super-relativity.com. 
All right. So oh, I'll and play. also, also, please, uh, if I'm starting to make videos and such, and uh, and I'm putting stuff on my YouTube channel, mm -hmm. so please go over there and subscribe. All right. So uh, I don't think I have the link to your YouTube channel. If you want to send me all those links, and then I can put them in the notes of this episode, so that my sure. listeners can check them out while they're listening to us. Yeah, that's fine. I can do that. No problem. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, taking the time to talk to me tonight. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. That was a really interesting interview. Ah, yeah, I thought it was good. You had a lot of good questions. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.